was driving along on the road and his car ran out of petrol. Thankfully, his wife recalled that they had passed the petrol station about half a mile back. So she reminded, told him that, and so he said, great. So he fossicked around in the boot for something to be able to put petrol in. The only thing he had in the boot that was satisfactory was his grandson's potty. So he trudged back to the gas station, came back with the potty full of petrol. And just so happened that at that point, a car was driving by of a leader of a new church that just started down the road. And he recognised the bishop and thought, goodness, a fellow Christian in need, I'd better pull over and help him out. So he pulled his car into the side of the road and got out of the car and came walking back towards the bishop, who at that point was emptying the contents of the potty into the fuel tank. And the man gasped when he said, if I had known they had faith like that in the Church of England, I would never have left. <laughs> Let me then read to you from the Bible, <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 5. Oh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 7, and then we're going to skip to verse 9 and verse 10. Here we go. For we live by faith, not by sight. Verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done whilst in the body, whether good or bad. The Apostle Paul knew that all of this one day was going to come to an end. It was all going to stop. It was going to be wrapped up and the sky would rip open. And Jesus Christ himself, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would descend. You know, the one the Bible describes as having eyes that blaze like fire, whose hair is as white as snow, whose face shines with the brilliance of the sun, and who... Out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword who spoke stars and speaks stars into existence and holds the whole universe in place. God himself would come. And that he, Paul, would have to stand before him and give him a, an account of the way he had lived his life. He therefore had a reverential fear and awe of God that caused him to want to have a goal in his life to live in such a way as it would please him. And um, I'd like to suggest that we would be wise to do the same, given that we too will one day have to face him. And in the letter that he wrote to the, first, uh, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5, verse 10, he actually said to the church there, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. So with that said, what then does please God? Well, let me tell you this morning, the foundation stone of a life that pleases God is one that has faith. One that has faith. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says this. Sorry, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith is essential. Well, what is faith? Well, verse 1 of chapter 11 says this. It defines this for us, which is great. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, the chapter breaks in the Bible can blind us to the context of verses. And we have a chapter break there in verse 1. So jumping into chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, the two verses before what we just read, gives us some context to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says this, But my righteous ones will live by faith. 
And I take no pleasure, in other words, he's not pleased with, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. So the foundation stone of a life that pleases God is one that has faith in him to save them from their sin. They've placed their faith in the saving work of the cross, the work that Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago for their salvation. They know that their eternity is sealed in heaven. What is faith? It is something that we actually don't naturally possess. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says that faith is a gift from God, enabling us to believe in him. It's a gift for eternal salvation. In Romans 12 verse 3, it tells us that each of us are given a measure of faith. We're given a measure of faith. It is a gift. God empowers us to believe him, to serve him, to glorify him. And through the power of that faith he gives us, we're able to do those things. Now, the outworking and of faith in people's lives have enabled them to see incredible demonstrations of God's power. Amazing. Enabled them to receive answers to prayer that you know, would be considered impossible, but with him through faith they've become him possible. The Bible tells us in um, Joshua chapter 10, by faith Joshua saw the sun stand still in the sky, stop going down. Because they were running out of daylight and they were fighting the Amorites and they needed more time to defeat them. So he prayed and the sun stopped. And they're able to continue to fight the Amorites and overcome them. Then the sun carried on. King Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, he was dying and he prayed to God and God gave him miraculously 15 more years of life. And we know the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. David, a young boy with a slingshot and a stone, took out a huge giant, knowing that God would do it for him. He knew that it was God that was going to do it. Not himself, not his own strength, but he knew God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young Hebrew boys who um, Daniel 3 tells us were able to stand up against a pagan king and get thrown into a fiery furnace, but they believed that God would be able to protect them. And he did. Jesus himself appeared with them in the fiery furnace, protecting them from the flames. Things that would be considered impossible became impossible through faith. In Mark 11, we read that Jesus cursed a fig tree. And the next day, the disciples were walking past that fig tree and noted what had happened. Let's read it in Mark 11, verses 20 through 24. It says this, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed, it's withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now here we see Jesus teaching the disciples about faith. Faith is not a blank check. It's not just a name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, believe it and receive it, and you'll get everything you ask for. That's not what it is. That's not what the Bible teaches. In Mark 11, Jesus reveals the object of our faith. It is God himself. Jesus said, have faith in God. Have faith in God. It's a deep-seated confidence in who God is, what he has said, and what he will do. So, when Jesus said, have faith in God... He was saying four things. Firstly, have faith in God's nature and his character. In his nature and his character. In his person, as our loving heavenly father, who is for us and cares for us and carries our burdens. So have faith in his nature and his character. The second thing he was saying is have faith in God's promises. Not just his nature and his character, but his promises. 
we have his guarantee that he will keep every single promise he has made, every single one. Faith is an opportunity for us to demonstrate our confidence in his written word. When we find a promise in the word, we can be assured that it will come to pass. That's why we need to be in the word of God. It reveals his promises to us. It reveals his promises to us that we can lean on, that we can stand on. You know, to not do that is like having a bank account that is in your name with $100 million in it. And you've got all the cards in the world to access it. But you live with a wee purse and a few coins because you don't realize that that's yours. And so you're merely counting out the coins like Uriah Heap, you know, and just, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get by for, for fear of ending up being thrown in prison because you can't meet your bills. But you've got this massive bank account. You've got money to burn, literally. But you live like you don't because you're not in the word. You don't understand. We don't understand the promises, so we're not leaning on them. We're standing on them. You're during a particularly trying time in the, in the work of um, Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission. He served the Lord in China for 51 years, and it was a particularly difficult and trying time that he was going through. And uh, he said this when he wrote to his wife, we have 25 cents and all the promises of God. And with that confidence in the promises of God, he carried on. So we're to have faith in God's character and nature, Faith in his promises. We're also to have, number three, faith in his strength and his power. You know, it's one thing to promise something. It's another to have the power and the strength to be actually able to bring it off, to keep that promise. God, by definition, is God. He can do anything. <laughs> he created the universe. He stopped the sun. He healed the sick. He parted the sea. He walked on water, defeated death, hell, and the grave. He's all-powerful. So we're to have faith in his character, faith in his promises, faith in his strength and power to be able to meet and carry out those promises. But also, Jesus was saying, have faith in God's plan and his purpose. His plan and his purpose. You know, when it comes to faith in God, we should remember that he is actually outworking his glorious purpose and plan, his eternal plan. Everything in the universe is subject to his will. He will do anything outside his plan. He will not do a thing outside his plan. And we need to realize that um, he will not do everything we ask just because we ask it. He will do those things he wills to do. We can't just ask what we want. Prayer and faith is not about getting God to do what we want, but it's about aligning our will with his will and seeing his will outworked on earth. During the American Civil War in the mid um, 1860s, President Abraham Lincoln met with a group of, of uh, church leaders, ministers, for a prayer breakfast, and they ate their breakfast, etc., and after that breakfast, one of the ministers said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. Now, President Lincoln had a faith in God, it was a little unorthodox, he didn't go to church, but he had a deep faith in God, and um, he said this, and he showed a, a greater insight, actually, when he said this, he said, so when this minister said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side, he said, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side. Yeah, Lincoln reminded those ministers that religion is not a tool by which we get God to do what we want, but an invitation to open ourselves up to being and doing what God wants. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord has purposes and plans for, his individual, for our individual lives and the life of us as a church, for our city, our nation, and the nations of the world. God desires to reveal those purposes and plans to us. It's really exciting. It can be really, really great. 
awesome knowing that, hey, I'm, I'm in the palm of his hand and he's working out his purpose and his promise. And, and I believe, I believe, I believe that I'm going to be a better person tomorrow because of that. And his spirit is upon me and he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And I'm just a real blessing because God is with me, etc. But unwittingly, we can play into the enemy's hands when we find ourselves doubting their purposes. We might be believing all the things that we've had prophesied over us, promises, etc. But a few knockbacks, a few obstacles, a few things happen and we start to doubt. Did I really hear God's voice? Am I really in the palm of his hand? Is he really working out his purpose and his plan? You think for a moment about the children of Israel. They initially left captivity, out of bondage, in slavery to Egypt, of course. They set out on a journey led by Moses to the promised land. That journey was supposed to take about 11 days. But they eventually got in to the promised land after 40 years. Why the delay? What sidelined them? Why the sidetrack? What hampered their progress? God had promised a land full of flying with milk and honey. In other words, it would be a great land, a land that would be satisfying, bring them great joy. What happened? Well, in Numbers 13, we see they got to the edge of the promised land, and they sent in 12 spies to check the land out. And um, they, uh, upon their return, they bring this great report of how wonderful the land is. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they say, look, we can armor up. Let's go and possess it. Come on, let's do it. It's time. It's now. It's now. It's now. But ten of them say, the inhabitants are giants. Too big for us to conquer. And if we try to possess them, try to possess that land, we will suffer great defeat. And that negative report spread through the people and convinced the people they should turn back before they'd even fought one single battle. And in commenting on this, the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 19, says this. Hebrews 3.19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. See, unbelief and doubt can rob us of our inheritance and our destiny in God. Unbelief and lack of faith and doubt can stand in the way of us receiving so much from the Lord. Unbelief and doubt can cause us to say, well, it's right for them, but it won't happen for me. Others might get healed but I won't. Others might be blessed, but I'm always overlooked. Others might be astounded by what God does, but I, I, I don't think that'll be my portion. No, I'm just this, I, I'll never change. God kind of just overlooks me. Unbelief and doubt are the enemy of faith. Faith pleases God. Unbelief and doubt does not can cause us to shrink back. So we can see from Israel's history that unbelief and doubt can cause four things to take place in our lives. The first thing is this. We can exercise unnecessary caution. With unbelief and doubt, we can exercise unnecessary caution. The Lord had said that he was giving the land to the children of Israel as an inheritance. The idea of sending out spies to check out the land and the inhabitants and the cities and checking out their fortifications to live in tents or behind fortified walls does not appear to be God's idea. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 22, and this is Moses speaking, he says, then all of you came to me and said, let us go ahead, spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the, the route that we will take and the towns that we will come to. And verse 23 goes on to talk about the fact that Moses kind of approved that. And in Numbers 13, it seems like the Lord allowed it. And so they embark on a 40-day investigation of the land. The Lord had already told them on numerous occasions, some 20 times in the books of Genesis, Exodus and Leviticus, I am giving you this land. It is a good land, and I'm giving it to you. And yet they wanted to send out spies to check it out, just to check. What did it matter if the current inhabitants were few or many? Lived in cities and fortified walls or in tents? What did it matter if they were giants or not? God 
was giving it to them. It didn't matter what the obstacles were. It was going to work out anyway. And whilst generally speaking, it's a good idea to check out opposition and strengths and the weaknesses thereof, but with God on our side, it didn't matter what the size of the opposition is or the army we're about to confront, we're still going to make it. We're still going to make it. It just means a bigger miracle if they're bigger guys. And it could be argued that sending out spies showed a weakness, a fear on the part of the Israelites disguised as prudence. And that is how unbelief works, like a small end of a wedge. You know, we check it out and more information comes. It's like knocking that wedge in just a little bit further, causing a little bit more doubt, causing us to shrink back just a wee bit more. Instead of acting out on the promise and the command the Lord had given, unbelief and doubt can cause them and it, caused them and it can cause us too to be overly cautious and to shrink back. We should learn from this. Let's continue to boldly step into all that God wants for us as individuals and our families and our businesses and as a church. Let's not hesitate, hang back cautious about what's ahead. Let's armor up and embrace it in faith saying, let's go for it, come on. The time is now. Let's be all in. Okay, number one, unbelief and doubt can cause us to exercise unnecessary caution. The second thing unbelief and doubt can do is it it can uh, at least intensify the obstacles, intensify or magnify the obstacles. Now, the 12 spies brought back a report, and we read in Numbers 13, 27 to 29 this. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. And, of course, they brought some of that back. And the people looked at it. It was amazing. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak from there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites and all the other parasites live near the sea and along the Jordan. One of the spies, Caleb, tried to give a positive perspective, but the people chose to believe the negative report as they were given a report that magnified the obstacles. You notice a short description at the beginning of how good the land was and then long discourse about how the obstacles were there and how big and bad that it was going to be. And to compound that, in verses 32 and 33 of Numbers 13, they carry on. The land we explored devours those living there. In the land we saw that they were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Yet their focus was not on the good aspects of the land, the blessing of possessing it, but on the obstacles and that which was ahead. Their own unbelief and doubt was causing them to look at the benefits through the wide end of a spyglass and the obstacles through the small end. I've got one here, but I don't know if you've ever done this before, but they were looking at the, the, the uh, fruit on the land that was flying with milk and honey. Goodness, you seem so far away. And I'm sure there's f- milk and honey out there, Lord, somewhere. Yeah, oh, yeah, I see a grapevine. Oh, I see some grapevines. Yeah, oh, there's some cities over there. Yeah, yeah, that's all good. That's good. Now let's look at Oh my gosh, there's giants in the land. Oh my goodness. We ain't gone. That's basically what it's like. That's basically what it's like. But we've got to get the perspective right. Look through the thing the correct way. They forgot to include God in their report. There'll be obstacles ahead of us as well. They might seem insurmountable, but that's when we remember the Bible tells us God is for us. Who can be against us? And with God, all things are possible. Numbers 23, 19 tells us this. God is not human, that he should lie. Not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? 
When we are afraid, difficulties and problems are magnified. They're intensified. But when we choose to believe God and his word, they become small compared to our God. So unbelief can cause us to be overcautious and can cause us to intensify or magnify the obstacles. The third thing unbelief can do and doubt is very contagious. Very contagious. It spreads like wildfire. If you read the account in um, Numbers 14, you'll see that once the ten spies deliver the report, the whole community wept aloud. They were distraught and considered stoning Moses for bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt in captivity, saying it was better for us to have remained in Egypt in slavery to be right here, right now. From the ten spies, in a flash, it spread like wildfire across the whole Israelite community, of which there are several million, just like that. And we have to be careful what we say to others. Our words are powerful. You know, Proverbs 18.21 tells us this, that the tongue has the power of life and death. Now, with our words, we can inspire and encourage and promote faith, build people up. But also, we can cause doubt. Did not the serpent in the garden use words to sow seeds of doubt in Adam and Eve when he said, did God really say? And when we see the obstacles, we need to put a muzzle on our mouth and take it to the Lord in prayer and get his perspective before doubt and unbelief get a hold of our hearts and hinder us from entering into all that God has for us. And before we share those doubts with others and undermine their faith as well. Okay. The fourth thing unbelief and doubt can do is it can lead to a rejection of God. In Numbers 14, after the people chose to believe the report the spies brought and allowed unbelief and doubt to fill their hearts, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 14, 11, how long, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Now, verse 3, we see the Israelites had, Israelites had actually said this. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Unbelief and doubt caused them to treat God with contempt and to question God's character, his purpose, and his motive. They suggested that God had led them into a trap and didn't really care about them at all. They said they'd prefer to be back in Egypt under slave masters than entrust their lives to God, their deliverer. And unbelief and doubt caused them to the, come to the point where they saw God, dare I say it, as their enemy. And again, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 12 says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Unbelief and doubt can lead to rejection of God along with a propensity to magnify the obstacles, and if we're not careful, that thinking will spread like wildfire, whereas faith embraces God and all that he has for us. It says yes and amen to his promises, his power, and his ability to be able to bring those purposes off. The question is, when confronted with the obstacles, when confronted with the challenges, and it's no longer plain sailing, whose report are we going to believe? Whose report will we lay hold of? Will we believe the report of doubt and fear and uncertainty? and concerning our future, or the report that says there is a bright future ahead. 
The report that said God has good plans and purposes for our lives. The report that says the best is yet to come for our lives, our family, and our church, and our businesses. The report that says the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Whose report are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the report that says God is greater in me than he is that is in the world? Are we going to believe the report that I am healed, I am delivered, that I am free? Am I going to believe the report that says I'm a blood-bought child of God, holy and dearly loved, and the report that says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and I will fulfill the purpose of God that he has for my life? Why am I going to believe those kinds of reports? The report that says that I'm blessed. (laughs) An increase in well-being is ahead for me. Why believe that kind of report? Let's together declare that we will not doubt and not shrink back, but we will please him by having faith in him and all that he has for us despite the obstacles and the giants. You know, one night a house caught fire. A young boy was forced to flee to the roof. And the father stood on the ground below with outstretched arms calling out to his son, Jump, and I'll catch you. He knew the boy had to jump in order to save his life. But all the boy could see, however, was flames, smoke, and blackness. Jump, and I'll catch you. The father kept crying out. And the boy said, Daddy, I can't see you. The father replied, But I can see you, and that is all that matters. Sure, there's going to be challenges along the way, obstacles to navigate, doubts that spring to mind, barriers to overcome that might obscure our vision for a time. But let's not forget, God is a light-giving, Red Sea parting, water-walking, sickness-healing, devil-defeating, demon-thumping, miracle-working God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? God is for us who can be against us. If you're in a position to stand with me, please, it would be lovely to pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, I want to thank you for the cross and the victory that we enjoy because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we, you have victory in store for your people. And when we face obstacles, Lord, we don't want to shrink back. We want to be people full of faith, holding to your word and to your promises, continuing to believe for good, the good things that you have and for great blessing, that we might continue to be a blessing to others. We renounce fear and doubt and unbelief And we declare that we believe, God, that you have victory in store for the upright. Thank you for forward momentum in our individual lives and the lives of our family and business and our church. We say yes and amen to your plans and purposes, Lord. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. That, Jesus, you might be worshipped, you might be glorified, and you might be honoured. Amen.